Welcome to this episode of Talking Constitutions, a series of podcasts in which we explore the constitutional arrangements that frame the day-to-day affairs of politics and that affect our lives in a myriad of ways. Our subject today is exporting constitutions, considering how constitutions and constitutional ideas have been transported or transferred from their place of origin to a new one. My name is John Hudson, and with me I have Harshan Kumarasingham, Tony Lang and Nicola McEwen. Harshan Kumarasingham is Senior Lecturer in British Politics at the University of Edinburgh and co-convener of the Arthur Berradale Keith Forum on Commonwealth Constitutionalism. Tony Lang holds a Chair in International Political Theory in the School of International Relations at the University of St Andrews and is one of the founding editors of the scholarly journal Global Constitutionalism. Nicola McEwen is Professor of Territorial Politics at the University of Edinburgh, co-director of the Centre on Constitutional Change and Senior Research Fellow with the ESRC Initiative UK in a Changing Europe. So could we start with you giving some instances where constitutions or constitutional ideas have been exported? And let's start off with you, Hashem. Thank you, John. Well, um, my area of um, interest is decolonization and especially looking at the um, how the Westminster model was exported around the world. And as we know, um, that the Westminster model is something very difficult to define and identify, but it's the ideas surrounding it and the ambiguities, in fact, that uh, characterize it made it actually an easy one in some respects to export to different parts of the world and in very unlikely places you might think, such as in Africa, Asia, uh, the Caribbean, in the sense that they're unlikely because they're very different societies and cultures uh, from Britain's. And nonetheless, um, the system was taken on in different forms and interpreted in different ways in various countries from basically the 1930s onwards at least, and arguably well into the present time. Nicola, would you like to take it on from there? Yeah, maybe just following on from that. I mean, one of the things I find intriguing about the export of the Westminster model is the way that, in a sense, there was a limit on that because of the core, what we think of in the UK now is the core constitutional doctrine of Westminster parliamentary sovereignty. And What's very interesting, I find, in places like Canada and in Australia is where some of the early thinkers around those constitutional settlements were um, trying to combine that continued sovereignty of what would have then been the imperial parliament alongside models of federal constitutional design and the way they wrestled with that um, in ways that are really, really interesting and were able to adapt Um, to federal structures in a way that the United Kingdom has long struggled to do for itself. But the so whereas if we look at, say, you know, the the ideas of popular sovereignty from France and the US spreading around the world, parliamentary sovereignty wouldn't have ever had the same effect because it was fundamentally in its purest form about Westminster parliamentary sovereignty and its continued significance even um, in that process of decolonization. Um, but it's the federal idea, the com- combination of that, which I find very interesting. Of course, federalism and federations have become a model of export 
in many, many places, and particularly in recent years. Tony. One of the interesting things about constitutions and constitutional ideas is they seem to travel all the time. They seem to kind of circulate and move from place to place. I mean, if anybody listened to our St. Andrew's James Wilson lecture by B Bill Ewald, he talked about how the influence of James Wilson, a Scottish uh, individual who, who came to the to the then the colonies and eventually the United States helped to shape the U.S. Constitution, but bringing with them perhaps ideas from Scotland and the Scottish Enlightenment, as other figures in the American Constitution were were influenced by that. So there's kind of that. I think it's always been happening, but um, it's interesting too to hear Harshan and, and Nicola's examples of the Commonwealth one. I, it, just in getting ready for this, I looked. There's a good book by a guy named Rand Herschel called Comparative Cost or Comparative Matters, I think in which he talks about how in the early 20th century, the UK Commonwealth model and the US model was one that was copied quite a bit around the world, but probably in the, his, his findings are probably in the last, I think, 20, 30 years, if he, he's looking at judicial decisions and when they reference other judicial decisions. So in a sense, a kind of quasi-constitutional modeling. Um, and, but he says that those references to the UK and the US are less prevalent today and you see more references in judicial decisions from places like Canada, Germany, the European Union. So it's interesting how there's been, even in India as well, the Indian Supreme Court has been quoted in a number of places around the world. So it's interesting. Now, again, those aren't constitutions being moved from one place to another, but obviously the Supreme Court is, is making reference in some interesting ways. Supreme Courts around the world are drawing upon constitutional models, perhaps in new places, that didn't exist, that didn't, that it was, that wasn't happening in the 20th century. So that's, I think, kind of an interesting example. Going on from that, Tony, that is a sort of, it's not quite osmosis, but it's the atomistic spread of constitutional ideas. If you are imposing or deliberately exporting a constitution or part of a constitution, what are the processes involved? In terms of a whole constitution, I mean, we do have examples of this in recent years, and this would be, for instance, after occupation in places like Iraq and Afghanistan, where you have efforts by great powers to import their constitutional models, perhaps a bit more aggressively and a bit more in an imperial sense. And there's a whole debate, for instance, in the Iraqi constitution making process after the Iraq War of 2003. There's a good book by a guy named Andrew Arato called Constitution Making Under Under Occupation, something like that, where he looks at all the stumbles that the U.S. administration got into in trying to impose a particular form and not respecting Iraqi sovereignty and not respecting, you know, although it was a complicated situation, of course, when you decimate a country and then try to rebuild its constitution. So, so yeah, I, I was quoting kind of nice examples of, of Supreme Courts drawing from each other. But there's, of course, the more aggressive, you know, imperial model, which still takes place, I think, to this day. And that that's obviously problematic in a number of ways. Harshan, would you compare that with the sort of spread of constitutions within the Commonwealth context that you were talking about before? I think, yes, there's a, there's a combination of what uh, Tony's saying, of where there's a measure of imposition, but there's also a measure of um, localized design, if you like. And, and, and actually, in building on Nicola's point of the federal idea, it's interesting, isn't it, that other than of the main countries coming out of empire, other than my own country, New Zealand, um, there was the federal model was there. And sometimes many failures, such as the 
Federation in the of the West Indies, Federation between Singapore and Malaya, um, and in the Central um, Federation of Rhodesia and Nyasaland. And these were often done as a hedge in some ways, where there were plural, highly plural societies, such as Rhodesia and Nyasaland, where there was, of course, the major African population and a, and a strong white minority, and how to try and keep them there. So keep them together, but keeping one community underfoot, if you under heel, if you like. And so there is a, is a, but on the other hand, it's also something that the settlers themselves wanted. And this is something um, that I, at least in my research, something I call Eastminster, about how there is this combination of uh, localized innovations and deviations from what we would might consider the norm in Britain or in England and Scotland, and, and taken out a completely different way in, in, in very different parts of the world. So there was very little in terms of um, absolute, absolute criteria, if you like, in, in, in these experiments. Nicola, would you like to add to yeah, that? Yeah, I mean, I think I think those contributions are really, really fascinating, and 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 I think that local element is is quite important too. I absolutely agree with with Tony about the the examples, and we can all point to the examples of a kind of almost imperial um, export of a model um, in post-conflict societies, and it's easy to see that in a sort of power dynamic, almost kind of negative way. But sometimes I think there are constructive elements at play here, too, about how we can draw upon ideas, particularly from federalism, because a lot of those constitutional um, designs have been influenced by federal ideas about how to balance unity and diversity, how to reconcile many of the factors, the, di- the, the, the issues, the dynamics that created conflict in the first place. Um, and so, yes, absolutely, there is power, power at play, there is a kind of imperialist export of a doctrine, but there's also sometimes at least some constructive uh, contributions being made there too. And that would work best when it is in partnership with different groups within the countries under discussion. And of course, it matters who is around the table and how inclusive uh, that process would be. If I if I could just follow up on Nicola's point there, which I completely agree with. I mean, I gave the extreme imperial example but there's, of course, I mean, the United Nations has a whole unit. Um, it used to be located within the UN Development Program. It's now called the Rule of Law Unit. And, and they're, one of the things they do is support constitution making around the world. Um, so for, going back to the early 90s when they supported Cambodia and, and its, its post-conflict transition period. And the, and the UN was involved as well in Iraq and Afghanistan, too, and, and tried to kind of moderate some of the harsher imperial agendas there. So so I think there, there and I think Nicola's right. There's ideas that, that some an institution like the UN can help support and bring to bear. There's also non-governmental or well, governmental, intergovernmental organizations like IDEA, the International Institute for Democracy and Electoral Assistance, I think. That, that also kind of provides these support mechanisms. So I, I think there can be some good ways in which these ideas can get shared and can help societies in, in crafting new constitutions. But even those can be, you know, converge onto imperialism or not imperialism, it converged into, can be problematic. I can, one of the examples would be after the Arab Spring um, in Egypt, um, one of their, one of the iterations of their constitution writing process 
the UN asked, do you need our assistance? And the Egyptian foreign ministry said, nope, we can handle this ourselves. We got a long history of constitutional writing. So it was an interesting example of saying, we don't need this help. We have a tradition and we've got our own resources and thank you very much. So, so I think it can be, there's, there's examples that can be learned and there's, I guess, a spectrum there. We've talked about problems in transfer of constitutional ideas, focusing largely on either the difficulties within the country to which that is being transferred to, or the difficulties associated with an imperialism here. But even if you have ideas being imported at the request of, at the desire of the recipient, this form of transplant can have difficulties. So looking at it from the recipient point of view, what are the problems of transplant, even if it is desired? Tony, do you want to start again there? Yeah, there, yeah I think that's one of the interesting challenges about constitutionalism. So, um, of course, as, as you know, John, historically, certainly going back to the classical period, a constitution was not just how government is organized. It's a wider societal cultural, uh, institutional set of norms that exist. And those are oftentimes unique to that society. Not not unique, but they're specific to either a region or to a particular polity or place. So I, I think there is that kind of internal generation of what a constitution ought to look like and how one ought to govern oneself. I guess today we live in such a globalized system that that you know, every nation state almost is a member of the United Nations and, and every state and community kind of participates in these kind of global norms, understands them, certainly at the elite level, the folks who would make a constitution. So you do have this kind of balance between the local and, and, the, and the global across many different things. But certainly when it comes to writing and crafting a constitution that both maps on to the particulars of a place, but then also speaks to some of the wider, as Nicola and Harson said, things like federalism or human rights would probably be the more you know, prominent one. We all have a sense of what human rights are and they make their way into so many constitutions these days. So that's something as well that's a global norm, but has to be interpreted locally. And I, I love the phrase Eastminster. So I'm, I think that's a great you know, kind of idea that Harshan's got there, that, that how these gets interpreted in a new way, perhaps. Harshan, do you want to pick up on this? Thanks, Tony. Um, well, I think one of the things, at least from my research, looking at um, the legacies of imperialism, is um, that for so long, people who were in a colonial situation were told that they were not able in a civilizational or cultural sense to use the hallowed uh, Westminster uh, model. And so in some ways, that egged on in some ways some of these freedom fighters to take on that model, even though it may not have been the most useful or apt system for their own uh, polities. And building on uh, Tony's point about bills of rights is a, a classic example, because it's not something that was traditionally part of the, the British constitution, well, taking out 1688, but the constitutional design of, and at least in the modern sense of having bills of rights. And then when you take to somewhere like um, these, these hyper um, heterogeneous societies, coming back to the idea of parliamentary sovereignty, where a simple vote in parliament, such as in um, Sri Lanka in 1956, meant that uh, the, the language rights of uh, a major community of composed of 20% of the population were removed entirely. And that was uh, seen as completely uh, constitutional. And there was not a legislative or constitutional 
mechanism in that type of system to prevent that because they tried to copy the, 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 the then British model. Following on from, from Harshan there, I think one of the most important things for me is to think of constitutions as living, living and breathing things and, and having the ability to adapt. And I think that's one of, one of the risks, perhaps, is if you're importing a model, even with the best will in the world, it might not be quite in keeping with the nature of the society that it's intended to apply to. And what are the mechanisms for adapting um, the, the, the system and the design to that society? And um, sometimes that will be built into the constitutional arrangements, but sometimes it won't. And in particular, if it has been designed with those involved who are already in positions of influence and power and those that are perhaps in minority status or more marginal um, may find it then more difficult to adapt the constitution in a way that is reflective of their position within within the society as well. Nicola, you've mentioned federalism several times. Do you think <laughs> that what you've just been saying is one reason why it is proving so hard for people to think through ideas of federalism in a new UK constitution, even if they're in favour of it? I think one of the main reasons why it's so hard to think of that in the UK system is because of the asymmetry that we have, both in terms of our constitutional design, but just in terms of the size of the component parts. And it's quite difficult to design a federal model when you have one constituent territory which is so dominant numerically, economically, politically, but ultimately also federal systems are about balancing unity and diversity. So they rest on the assumption of a commitment to live together despite these differences and to accommodate those differences. So it's not something that's very easy to introduce at the point in which that unity is itself in question. So it's that it's the asymmetry and the plurinational nature of the United Kingdom that makes discussions of federalism difficult, not impossible, but, but difficult in the current context in particular. Tony, we've been talking so far very much about constitutions, constitutional ideas moving from country to country, nation to nation. But also, of course, there's constitutions not at the national level. Would you like to say something about the possibilities and difficulties transferring constitutional practices or ideas from the national to the supranational level yeah yeah absolutely it, it's it's um not easy for one thing and there's people that uh, there's many people that would say it's just impossible that there can't be anything like a global or even a regional constitution there's a lot of resistance you know to the idea that even the european union is we, we actually they, they tried to create a european constitution which you know, transferred into a treaty, but, you know, that didn't work either in terms of being a formally called a constitution. But in my view, there, so much of, at that, certainly at the EU and, and in different, different regional contexts, but also at the global level is so constitutional-like, it's almost a mistake, a mistake not to see it through the lens of constitutionalism. So, I mean, you know, an easy place to start would be you know, the beginning chart, the Charter of the United Nations sounds quite a lot like the, the, the U.S., the beginning of the U.S. Constitution, right? We the people, we the peoples. So there's a and it was not, it was consciously in some ways adopted in that sense. And, and that's not just to say that, you know, American ideas helped create the U.N. I don't mean that at all. 
more that that principle of a kind of constituent power of a, of, a, of a people coming together, peoples around the world to create a governing document seems to be something that was shared both at the founding of the U.S. and certainly at the founding of the U.N. And, and there are some individuals, Bardo Fassbender, Michael Doyle, who've, who've tried to make the case that the U.N. charter is like a, a global constitution. I wouldn't go that far. I would instead want to see constitutional ideas and practices at the global level. So you do have things like a separation of powers that sometimes does function. You have examples of the rule of law being pressed both between states and, and amongst individuals. And then, of course, you have rights, uh, the whole human rights structure in place. So I think we can see constitutional ideas at the global level. They're fragile. Yeah, I'm not, I wouldn't want to say that there's something that's very robust, but I would also then ask those who are maybe critical of this to say any national constitution is also fragile. Um, and we see constitutions quickly collapsing and coming apart. And so, you know, there is a sense that, that this is not just a global problem, but could be a national problem. So I think, you know, it's, it's that famous, again, I'll use an American example, when the, when the founders uh, the, in the U.S. Constitution left the Constitutional Convention, someone asked Ben Franklin, what have you created? And he said, a republic, if you can keep it. So I think that's a good example. Like, if we could keep thinking about constitutionalism globally, that might be a way to see that transplant happening. Oshan, would you like to take that on? Tony's points also, I think, point to the critical fact in all of in, in our discussion, I think, of, of participation. And, and, and in many of these cases, um, either there's a disproportionate amount of participation from certain powers, or there's a, more often a, um, a complete lack of participation of many communities or less powerful actors in, in, in the process, either the world governance level or, or even in the, um, if you take this UN moment or San Francisco moment as well, where there's this you know, different ideals coming out after the end of the war, these are not very adequately, if you like, applied in the nation state building uh, process where I suppose there wasn't really um, a prominent culture beyond the few important exceptions of, of engaging with a wider uh, segment of society. It was usually done at a very high elite level, um, not always with bad results, it must be said, but nonetheless, there was not always a great amount of participation, which some often had uh, problems down the line in terms of accountability or um, constitutional um, engagement with the centre or in particular areas. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's interesting that constitutions and constitution making seems to mirror, I don't know if it preempts or follows, probably follows, um, changes in the nature of governing. And in that sense, I wouldn't want to talk so much about supranational constitution making, but actually sub-state constitution making too. And we're seeing increasingly now sub-state governments think about their own constitution or constitutional arrangements. Quebec, for example, has a bill of its own bill of rights separate from, but ultimately embedded within the charter. In Scotland, there's increasing debate about whether there should be distinctive human rights approaches within Scotland, within the devolved context, and that will intensify if we start to see a retreat from human rights at the UK level. So it's sort of nested constitution making, um, reflecting and, and perhaps mirroring um, changes in governing arrangements. With this gathering of people, it seems obvious to us what the, it's the role of 
academics and academic debate and exploring both the possibilities and the difficulties in the export of constitutions or constitutional ideas. Parshan, would you like to begin here? I, I think of um, someone I've, I've studied a lot, a person called Sir Ivor Jennings, who was a prominent British constitutional expert in the for much of the 20th century. And he he was you know tasked with uh, constitution making, if you like, all around the world, including um, creating a um, Islamic constitution for the Sudan, <laughs> even though I, I, I chuckled because he had almost no knowledge of um, Islam or um, or the Sudan. And yet he was seen as the person to do it because he had worked with other quote unquote, you know, Eastern and non-white uh, uh, people in, in his in his career. Um, and in fact, he, he only came to look at in some ways to look at these types of territories because as a young man, he had been um, he didn't get the job he wanted at the LSE. And so he went out to be the vice chancellor in, in, at, at uh, 31 of the newly minted University of Ceylon uh, during the war. And then he just wanted to be, in his words, involved. And that led to places going to Pakistan, Malaya, uh, Singapore, Ethiopia. He was involved in the UN as well, and uh, it didn't seem his <laughs> lack of expertise was a uh, a problem uh, with his since he was the the, the go-to person. And that, although that being said, there there was a you know there was a desire for many of these societies to have someone who was an outsider, because uh, they, they they didn't want to have someone necessarily who had a vested interest for uh, like a particular community, a particular linguistic group, a particular religion, uh, because he wasn't a, a servant in this case of the British government. He was doing this at the beck of, of uh, the people he called. Tony? For me, what academics can do, maybe a good example of what Harshan was saying is to not do is to, first of all, have a certain sense of humility about our ability to kind of suggest new ideas for places but that doesn't mean we can't provide insight. So, you know, like the comparative work that, that Nicola does and, and to kind of collect data about these places around the world and really to think carefully about how you can do that and how they might apply. And, and that for me, one of the things that I like about um, some of the work that we do here at St. Andrews through with you, John, is also to get people to think historically. The constitutions are, you know, there's a history, there's a heritage to these kind of things. And then the other one, the big one for me, is also that constitutions are political documents. They're not just legal documents. And that's a particularly American problem, I think. Americans see the U.S. constitutions primarily as the law, whereas it frames a whole political structure. And, and I think to be attentive to the politics and the political theories behind constitutions is something I think that, that academics can do. I mean, of course, we do need international lawyers helping us to think about and, and, law, and law scholars helping us to think about it too, but but I want to maybe highlight that we need that kind of political and historical attentiveness as well. Nicola. Uh, yeah. I, I agree completely. I was just the other day reading again um, Lightheart's work on consociational democracy and thinking, oh my God, what a, what a phenomenally powerful idea, essentially an academic idea that has been transferred into constitutional design and loads of, of different different places but I agree absolutely with, with with Tony I think for the mere mortals among us the 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 best and and really valuable contribution that that we can make is to 
look at how constitutional ideas operate in practice, think about the way that they evolve in particular societal contexts and comparative contexts. If you think of, you know, I, I mean, I keep on going on about federalism. If you think about that as an idea at its simplest, it's it's just about unity and diversity. It's about shared rule and self-rule. But how you actually implement that has so many different varieties. Studying that, studying the dynamics of these processes, the impact of particular constitutional designs in particular types of societies. I think that's where academic study and um, added value comes, I think, in generating understanding, because I do worry sometimes where you have exporting constitutional models or transplanting constitutional ideas, it's often sort of a little bit half-baked in that you you selectively take some ideas from a particular constitution to apply for particular purposes. I think we, as coming at this from a more impartial perspective, have a, an important contribution to make in terms of understanding the implications of those choices. Despite Nicholas' warning, we tend to like to finish with a question of the following sort, which allows you to have your Jennings moment. Is the present one particular constitutional idea or one constitutional practice that you'd like to have see distributed more widely? Let's start with Tony. For me, it's it's kind of almost a pre-constitutional practice, but it should be a kind of continuum, which is the idea of kind of constituent assemblies. Uh, the, the the way, and this gets to some of the question, you know, the issues that I think both Harshan and Nicola mentioned about inclusivity and ensuring that you have representation. We only seem to be represent get represented when we vote, but there's these you know important moments where I think it's a good idea to bring people together to think together about what our constitution ought to be. And that should include people who have expertise, but it should also include people who don't. So you've got these really interesting examples like Iceland, which was maybe a little bit of an easier case because there's a more homogenous community there, but where they did have a constituent assembly that didn't really, uh, even in the end, <laughs> various problems happened that it didn't turn out that it was implemented what was suggested. But I think the notion of a constituent assembly, if people together writing a constitution would be one I'd like to see both maybe subnationally, nationally, and maybe even regionally and globally, if there was any way to, to do that. I don't know, but that would be a, a, an ideal kind of model. Hashan, what about you? I think uh, something I would like to see, looking at more non-European and more, more Anglo, less Anglo-American um, ideas around the world, and, and because the, the wealth of experiences from other parts of, of the globe are I think are very illustrative, not necessarily in a in a um, applicable sense, but they're they're very positive in terms of learning. And Tony mentioned Iceland. I think of uh, Malaysia, for example, when they uh, were designing their constitution in the run up to independence in 1957, they made a conscious decision not to, when they had their constitutional commission, not to appoint a single person from Malaya, Malaysia, and instead they got people from uh, Pakistan, from Australia from India, from Britain, and, and the chair was a Scot, actually, um, Lord Reid. And it, was, it wasn't necessarily that they were going to follow everything they did, but they wanted to see these different perspectives on their own policy. And I think that's um, a healthy thing, even if it's not to be um, followed to the letter. And Nicola, you get the closing words. The one thing I would like to see is a little bit more an acceptance of sometimes there may be um, a process of secession 
And sometimes it will be better for that to have a constitutional path. Most constitutions around the world are silent on the issue of secession. Very few will incorporate a constitutional right to secession. Many more have a constitutional prohibition on secession or the indissoluble unity of the state or whatever. I mean, I don't think that any of these things in the constitution in and of itself will have a bearing on what actually happens on the ground. At least the empirical evidence is not particularly strong uh, to suggest that it does. But when politics moves in the direction of where a substantial section of the population and in a particular territory is intent on a process of secession, is intent on leaving the state, I think it would be far better to have a constitutional route to do that than to not have one or indeed even a prohibition. It's more likely then to be more conflictual, potentially violent in some cases. And I'm not talking about the UK case here. Um, The Canadian Supreme Court, I think, did us all an enormous service by exploring in the Canadian context the Quebec reference on secession, but I think with implications for our understanding elsewhere. The UK context just now, we're about to have, we're already having a prolonged debate about the process and who gets to decide and what that means and can it actually ever happen. And I think that's from a democratic perspective, a little bit problematic in that you're, if you don't have a democratic path, what do you have? What do you have in a democracy if there is no democratic path to secession or to independence? So I would like to see a little bit more on that, a little bit more understanding of having a process in place can facilitate something and perhaps take some of the the heat and uh, potentially uh, conflict out of these sorts of very difficult situations. That ties things up very nicely because rather than giving us the Jennings moment, it gave us what uh, Tony proposed of utility and humility of the academic proposal. So thank you very much, Harshan Kumarasingham, Nicola McEwen and Tony Lang, and thank you all for listening.